your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Zeal one pitch. Now it's popped up into foul territory on the right side. Schwellenbach waiting for it and makes the catch for the third out of the Huskers. Win this one in dramatic fashion in 13 innings, seven to six over Rutgers as they improve to 23 and 11, and they win three games out of four in the Piscataway Pod. How about that? Sports Nightly is presented by the NDOT Highway Safety Office, who reminds you to buckle up and put the phone down. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Hey, good evening. Welcome. It's another Sports Nightly, a Tuesday night. So glad you're with us here tonight. Going to talk some sports with you for the next three hours, and we're going to have some fun, including Will Bolt. Our baseball show moved to Tuesday this week because of the Huskers matchup Monday in Piscataway. So the boys traveled back last night. So we'll hear from the head coach after a 3-1 and weekend for the Big Red. They split with Indiana and took two from the Rutgers Scarlet Knights. Looking forward to talking to Coach Bull here in hour number two. Get your comments, questions ready for the head coach during that hour. Chris Baznet of the Lincoln Journal Star is going to join us here in a couple of minutes. He covers not only Husker baseball, but Husker basketball. We'll get his thoughts about some of these roster moves that Fred Hoiberg has made in the last couple of weeks, including a commitment to, that signed with Nebraska a week ago. And we'll get Chris's take on what that roster is starting to look like for the Big Red. Hour number three, it's a Tuesday. That means Top Ten Tuesday is back. We're going to an interesting topic. We'll credit Austin with this one that we're going to talk about over the last 20 years of Husker sports, the most underappreciated Husker athletes. This will be a fascinating uh, group of, of, of uh, men and women that we're going to throw out at you, I think, in hour number three. So that's some fun with that. Tyler Merriam from South Dakota State is going to also be with us in the third hour. The Jackrabbits are set to play in the FCS National Championship game this weekend against Sam Houston State. So they're headed down to Frisco, Texas. A lot of Nebraska natives on that roster up in uh, – Brookings, so we'll hear from Tyler and get his take on this matchup with Sam Houston State at an hour number three. And as always, we want you to be a part of the program, 531-500-4686. The number to dial us up with a comment or question or fire off a text. You can do that using our U.S. Cellular text line. Proud to be the official wireless sponsor of the Oscars, U.S. Cellular Connecting Oscar Nation. And Ben McLaughlin has made his way back to the state of Nebraska after taking down Piscataway, I guess I, I guess you can say that. You won three out of four. You took it down, right? Yeah, sure. You know, if that's if that's the the, the terminology <laughs> we we're going for. Even though technically we stayed in New Brunswick, but yeah, I mean three and one weekend. So yeah, I think we we did fairly well to uh, to put our stamp on that place and, and come home with a few wins. It was not ideal for you and Nick because of the thirteen inning. <laughs> game yesterday it cost you your flight home you you had a little extended stay last night correct yeah not a, not ideal um thankfully we uh we were able to work some things out with the travel to where you know we could we could set ourselves up with an an early flight this morning and get home at a decent hour nick had a a show to do today a four-hour show to do today so i think we landed in omaha around noon quick turnaround for him um, you know, I had a little more time to get settled here, but a lot to, to catch up on. Not only were we extended a stay, Greg, but 
we already missed a day of the week because we played on Monday. So I feel really behind. You know, it's here we are Tuesday <laughs> night, and I don't even think I have my bag unpacked yet. So yeah, it's been it's been kind of a crazy uh, crazy day. You know, getting ready, and then obviously Ohio State and Purdue played today, which was which was bizarre. And you've got other teams, you know, playing midweek games. A lot of teams down in the southeast portion of the country playing games tonight. And you know, we're we're talking about a quick turnaround yet. I'm forgetting what it was like to have have midweek games and and that having that be a turnaround. So I think the boys will be ready on Friday. But yeah, it was it was an extended stay in the Garden State of New Jersey, but we made it home safe and sound. Austin and I were talking about what a what a fun couple of weeks it's going to be with Indiana, Nebraska, and Michigan so tightly bunched in the standings, and they play each other coming down the stretch. Uh, the Indiana Michigan play this weekend. Nebraska goes back to Bloomington next weekend where they'll face the Hoosiers twice and then obviously finish the year up with the Wolverines with three in Lincoln. I mean, I don't know who put this schedule together, but kudos because the three teams vying for this league title are certainly going to get a bunch of wax at each other in the next three weeks. And this, this should be a kick, Ben, what we're about, about ready to watch in the next three weeks. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how this goes. And there's another team that's kind of lurking that's probably just watching with uh, with open eyes because they know, you know, if a lot of these series go 2-2, uh, 2-1, that they've got a pretty favorable schedule down the stretch, and that's Iowa. You know, I I, I don't – it's going to take take some, some teams to really stumble down the stretch for them to um, get in that mold, but they're not playing any of those top teams. So if they take care of their business, they're going to be right there at the end themselves because of the fact that Nebraska and – Indiana and Michigan are going to be playing each other and beating each other up and handing each other losses. Iowa, you know, if they're if they're constantly winning, they're going to have something to say about this thing at the end too. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's going to be a, a mad dash to the finish, and you know, every single one of these weeks down the stretch are are vitally important. And even this last weekend was too. Yeah, no no doubt about that. You know, uh, something that that broke while you were in Piscataway, a couple of Husker wide receivers en- entered the transfer portal. Austin and I talked about it last night. I want your take on this thing as Demarion Houston and Jamie Nance both have submitted their name. Jamie's already picked up a couple of of offers from Utah State and Texas State. I said last week after spring ball was done, you, you finished up with final exams, get a semester over, expect some of this to happen. What Were you surprised at all? What's your take of these two guys entering the portal? No, I, I can't say I'm surprised. I I think we all kind of expected some attrition after spring ball, and you and I have said this for years, not even just this year, but you um, you constantly see – after spring ball, players come to the realization of where they're at in the depth chart. And those are guys that have been in the program a long time and haven't made many strides at all to push for time. And they're seeing guys like Omar Manning, Samari Toure, Will Nixon, um, some of the, Xavier Betts, some of these newer players just all of a sudden jump them and you know start to get all the reps. Oliver Martin, another guy. So I think they're, they're, they're looking at this and going, yeah, you know what, I – I don't think I'm going to get a lot of snaps here, so I'm, I'm going to move on. I, I gave it, you know, two, three years, and it's just it doesn't look like my path is getting any clearer. And here's the other thing: you've got Kamonte Grimes, Sean Hardy, and you know, a couple of other guys coming in here trying to take their more, more of their spots here in the spring, so or in the fall rather. So I think um, 
they probably saw the writing on the wall and you know are going to want a, a better opportunity someplace else. Well, and we wish them luck. Uh, obviously, if you don't, playing time is primarily the reason for guys jumping into the portal. And, and I just don't know that there was going to be much available for those two guys. And so hopefully if they find somewhere where they can get some more playing time, uh, that would be good. Um, uh, Tim mentioned this in the in the open in the ticker about some some weight training times were put out today. Vertical jumps were put out today. Um Lots being made of Cam Jurgens. Some of the numbers that he put vertical jumps on the team. He was uh, he stood out. He was up there with some safeties and some corners and some of that. Um, the vertical jump for Cam Jurgens was thirty four and a half inches. It ties him with Zach Winemaster, a running back, and puts him ahead of Deontay Williams, who we know is a really good athlete in the secondary. We, we've kind of been told that Cam Jurgens Ben, is a bit of a freak athletically, and, man, some of the stuff they put out today certainly <laughs> verifies that. you got a guy that weighs 290 pounds, and what is Cam, 6'3", 6'4", to be able to vertical jump 34.5? Holy moly, that's impressive. Yeah, I think it's starting to give credence to the coaching staff when they talked just about his athleticism and what he brings to the table. I know there was a lot of people annoyed um, with how much hype Cam Jurgens was given when he made that position change. But I think, you know, when you have tangible results like this that people can look at and, and the coaches can say, we kind of got scoreboard right now. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's, uh, it, I think it, it, it's a lot of validation. Now, the snapping is something that is an issue, and there are other parts to the center position that don't show up in testing categories or columns that – are very important, but when you have the skill set that Cam has, it makes a lot of those things easier, and I think it, uh, you know, it, it it validates the move there, and and you know, speaks a little bit to his potential. Yeah, well, he certainly has that. The coaches have noticed that as they've worked with him and uh, talked about. And they, when when he got here a couple of years ago, they weren't quite sure what his position would be. Was he going to be a tight end? Was he going to be an outside linebacker? Maybe and. And then I, I don't know if it was Coach Frost. I think it might have been Coach Frost saying, I think this guy has a chance to be an all-conference type center. He's got the ability to move. We can put his frame, can hold more weight than what he had on when he arrived in Lincoln out of Beatrice. And hopefully the snapping issues that you referenced get settled in and he becomes that anchor of that line. I think the potential is there if he can get consistency with snapping the football back to the quarterbacks in that shotgun look because the, everything else about his game, his mobility, his ability to pull, get out in front of ball carriers, get out in front of a quarterback, pretty impressive stuff. And so um, we were told by Coach Frost a few months ago that they would be releasing some of their some of their weight room work, and I know a lot of Husker fans, Ben, have kind of pined for that. That was something that was pretty commonplace a couple of decades ago and. Coach Osborne was in charge of the program to do some of that, and it's kind of uh, evaporated. But fans love to, to particularly people who who understand weight training, that then they love to dive into some of the the metrics of some of these numbers that we're. I think we're going to start kind of slowly being fed here in the coming weeks. There's a lot of people that they're kind of junkies about that, like like they are a little bit about the NFL draft, where they get into all of those measurements that the uh, the NFL runs their players through. Yeah, I think it's it's important. I mean, it's important to 
you know, and we, I've talked to a few few of the players on the show about that, and you know, every one of them have said it's you don't need a motivating factor to work hard in the weight room, but this provides one anyway. You know, when your results are being published like this, and you're showing up the weight room, you're, you know, you're you're ready to go and you're ready to perform well. And for us fans, you know, I think I think who isn't interested in, in finding out, mm-hmm. you know, who who some of the best athletes on the team are and. How many times in the offseason have we said, oh, I wonder who would win in a race, Deontay or, uh, you know, whoever else? I, th- I mean, I think that's that, that's the fun part about it. And this this gives, you know, some some substantial, you know, numbers and, and test scores that people can look at it and say, yeah, I mean, this guy did test well or, you know, I, I haven't seen this guy on a list. However you want to perceive whatever data you're given, you know, it, it's it's great as a fan. And it's, you know, it's – it's not like you're you're showing up to, to dinner with a huge dessert, but you're throwing a snack bar every now and again and getting to see what you know what what's what's yeah. behind the curtain a little bit. So I think yeah, anything that fans can get their hands on, they're going to appreciate. I know I enjoy watching those results today, and I can't see the other ones that come out in the next few weeks. The best vertical jump on the team turned in by Oliver Martin uh, with a forty-inch vertical. Not surprised. I think he showed enough flashes to all of us in the spring game that he's a special athlete. And, there, and then Chris Kolarvik, the transfer linebacker from Northern Iowa, was second on the team at 38-inch uh, vertical jump. That tells you what kind of athlete he is, followed by Isaac Gifford. Who's a, man, Isaac Gifford is going to play. I, I, I mean, I don't know where he's going to be. I, I guarantee he'll be on special teams, but he may just force himself on the field the way that kid's just a great football player, the leading tackler in the spring game. But some of that came out today, and again, I think we're just going to get a little steady diet of this over the next couple of weeks from the Husker football account and uh, sign me up for being a guy that's interested in seeing some of those numbers here today. All right, that's what we have on the program tonight, 531-500-4686. That's the number to dot us up with a comment or question. We're back to talk to Chris Baznett of the Lincoln Journal-Star. We'll do that next. We're back. It's a sports nightly Tuesday night. Will Bolt will be with us at the top of the hour. Our baseball show shifted to Tuesday because the boys played yesterday and then traveled back from Piscataway. So his show bumped from its normal Monday time slot to tonight. We'll be back to Monday next week after the Northwestern series here on Sports Night. But we're delighted to welcome on board the program. Before we get to Coach Bolt, Chris Baznet, who covers the Husker baseball team for the Lincoln Journal Star as well as Husker basketball. Have you ever covered a game where there was a noblest bat used, Chris? <laughs> I I have not, Greg. I have seen some things covering baseball in my time. I've covered a twenty inning baseball game. I've I've seen some extra inning games. I have never seen a noblest bat, um, especially with that the noblest bat being like the last in a weird se- sequence of events uh, happening in a game. That that seventh inning was something, wasn't it? I mean, one of the beautiful things about the sport is you can show up to the ballpark and there could be something that you've really never seen before. And, and all of us have watched hundreds of thousands of baseball games, but every day every, there's a lot of times you go, well, haven't seen that happen before. The knobless bat for me was new too. <laughs> yeah, that was new. The the uh, the quote unquote obstruction call at first base was a was a new one for me. The the runners getting sent back. Yeah, I've never, I've never ever ever in my 20 nearly 20 years covering sports seen seen a novice bat and, and you're right that's what that's what makes the sport so great that's what makes college baseball so much so much fun to follow 
And, and wasn't there like a, a hit batter that wasn't hit? I mean, was, was that part of that thing too? Was that that same inning? Yeah, they they they, they called a Rutgers batter for leaning into a pitch that didn't actually hit him, and it, and it ticked <laughs> off of uh, of <laughs> off a of Griffin Everett's glove. So that was a whole other fiasco they had to sort out. So I'm just glad I wasn't doing the scoring for that for Ooh. that inning because it was yeah, a, it was a bit of a disaster. Yeah, you need the you need the full brain of Seamus McKnight on that thing to get that thing scored correctly. <laughs> How big a weekend was that for the team in your estimation? I think it was pretty huge. Um, you know, you, going into that and looking at who you're playing, you're, you're thinking, well, we probably need to keep pace with Indiana, right? Because they're they're the team ahead of you in the standings. You don't want them to get too far away from you here as you get to as you get late into the year. And and Nebraska did that. They went three and one. They split with Indiana. They got two games with Rutgers. And I think that's probably if you were to to ask the coaching staff that in a private moment, that's probably what they would tell you was the, the bare minimum they needed to get out of that weekend. And they did it. So that's what makes that, that win on Monday so important. It's what made that win over Indiana, the walk-off so important is that it allowed Nebraska to a obviously win three out of four games, but B keep pace with the Hoosiers, keep yourself in the, in the conference title race and, and keep some momentum as you head into this next weekend. Now, what, what happened do you think the week before, man, I think everybody was kind of puzzled by getting swept at home by Rutgers. What, what, what went wrong in your eyes in that weekend? Yeah, it was, it was just funny. You know, the, the things that had been Nebraska's strengths, kind of disappeared. You know, we saw the bullpen give away a couple leads late after the seventh inning when Nebraska had been 13-0, and uh, leading after seven innings coming into that weekend. They go 0-2. Uh, you saw the offense go quiet. You know, and, and then Sunday, I think, it's just a culmination of the way you lost the first two games. And Will Bolt was honest about that. He, he thought his team came out flat. You know, they, they were deflated a little bit after the way the first two games had gone and all of a sudden it's a sweep and now you're looking for some answers a little bit. So yeah, I think if you're, if you're this team, you're probably thinking, well, that was a fluke. That's just not who we've been all year. And and they kind of got back to how they had played early in the year this weekend. We, we saw the offense come back. We saw the bullpen do really good work. So I think if you're, if you're Will Bold, if you're Jeff Christie, Lance Harvell, you look at that weekend and go, man, that was just a, just a weird fluke that happened to come at a, at a weird time in the schedule for us. And that's what happened. Chris Pazant with us here from the Lincoln Journal Star. What, what have you gotten any indication if, if the series is going to go off without a hitch this weekend with Northwestern? The Cats have not played the last two weekends because of COVID issues. What are, or what, if anything, are you hearing about this weekend? Yeah, no, nothing official yet. Uh, obviously, from either side, um, I you know I just don't think we'll know and, until you know if Will has an answer for us tonight. If something comes out in the next few hours or tomorrow, you know it sounds like season ticket holders got an email yesterday saying tickets said were on sale for the weekend. So that's obviously a pretty good sign. You know, Coach Bolt's doing his his weekly Zoom call with the media tomorrow morning. I think that's a good sign that things are trending in the right direction, but. No, I think we've also learned too that you just you never say never uh, when it comes to this stuff. We we may not have an answer until later in the week, just because you don't know what it's like inside Northwestern's program. Northwestern's been pretty quiet about about what's been going on with their program, what the schedule looks like for them. So yeah, and, and until we get to it, it may be later in the week uh, until we know, just because. That with the crazy things that have happened all through this pandemic over the last year, I just don't think you can ever say for any certainty what's going to happen until until you're you know until the almost until the teams are on the field. Yeah, no doubt. I mentioned Chris also covers Husker basketball. Let's go there next. A lot of things have happened since that team walked off the court 
in March at the Big Ten Tournament. What, if any of it, has surprised you? Has, has everything kind of gone to script in your eyes, or what, what, what do you make of the last 45 to 60 days for the program? Yeah, I think it, I think it kind of has gone to script and, and has gone to plan, and, and maybe that's the surprising thing about it is that it hasn't been, you know, the – the upheaval that we've seen in the first two years under Fred Hoiberg, obviously you've got a, you've got a handful of players, new players coming in. You've, we've seen some players leave, but I don't think any of that was really unexpected. I think obviously Thorith or Bjarnerson turning pro wasn't really a surprise to a lot of people after he got his degree this year, same with Shamil Stevenson wanting to move on to the next level. And then you look at the, obviously the recruiting class coming in and you had a couple transfers and, and anymore, that's just the way the world works in college basketball. You're going to see, just about every team every year is going to see a couple, three guys transfer out, and you're going to bring a couple, three transfer, transfers in. So, you know, I think that's that's kind of what this program needed. They kind of needed a, a quote-unquote boring off season. Just, you know, you, you kept your core intact from last year. You added what looks like on paper to be a really, really good recruiting class. You added a couple solid transfers. And, and now what you need if you're Fred Hoiberg is a, a normal summer uh, where you can have summer workouts, get this team together, and get them working together and, and get ready for the fall. So, yeah, I think – I think it's gone pretty well for Nebraska, just from the standpoint that's been it's been pretty low key. There haven't really been any any major surprises, and they've been able to add some some nice pieces to the roster. I think they're done, or do you think what what do you I think they have what with Shamil leaving a week or two ago? Did that open up one more? What what do you think he does with the the vacant scholarships? Yeah, one open scholarship right now, and it sounds like they're going to stand pat with it. You know, you you look at the roster now, and with with Kobe Webster on there, with with Trevor Lakes on there, with Derek Walker on there. That's that's three guys that are that are quote unquote seniors that that don't count um, against your scholarship limit. Um, so you you've already got a lot of scholarship guys that are going to be looking for playing time. So. You know, unless there's a guy that that comes out of nowhere that's just a no-brainer, we have to add this guy. I think he'll stay in Nebraska, stand pat with that scholarship uh, until 2022. That gives him a little more flexibility to maybe go after a different piece uh, for this next recruiting cycle. So I think the roster you see right now uh, with the latest additions is the roster you're probably going to see come fall because I don't I don't expect Nebraska to add anybody else at this point the shakeup on the coaching staff I mean that that was tweaking it I guess you know the, the move of Doc Sather to a different role uh, replacing him or uh, replacing a strength coach even at that point of view I mean I guess this is a sign of a coach that's just not going to stand pat right I mean after two years like not major changes maybe but shake it just a little bit there yeah I think so you know and you just have to look at the records the last couple of years and clearly Fred Hoiberg thought that there did need to be some changes in some different areas. You bring in a strength coach with, with pretty heavy NBA experience. You bring in an assistant coach and, and Nate Lenzer who, who has significant NBA experience, who has worked with Fred Hoiberg before and understands Fred's systems and those sorts of things. And, and part of that too is Bobby Lutz wanting to get back into a coaching role too, and being able to mm-hmm. recruit, being able to coach on the floor, you know, and, and all those sorts of things. So let's not let's not forget that either. And, and I think it it made it easier knowing you had a a veteran guy in Doc Sather that you know you could slide into that role that Bobby Lutz had, and still allow him to kind of help with game planning and film study and those sorts of things, and and have a really experienced voice there. So the moves really kind of make sense when you kind of look at it in a big picture sense. Fred's adding guys that that he's familiar with and that have. NBA experience, and, and you're able to keep a really experienced guy in Doc Sadler. So, yeah, some minor shakeups there, and, and maybe that's what maybe that's what Fred Hoiberg feels this program needs to kind of take the next step. 
You know, I uh, the league can't be as good this next year, can it? I mean, it was really, really <laughs> good this past year. There's no way they can equate that in in twenty one twenty two, can they? <laughs> you wouldn't think, and you wouldn't think, and you look at some of the guys that won't be in the league next year. You know, chiefly, you know, a Luca Garza over at Iowa, the, yeah. the national player of the year, the consensus national player of the year. You know, Kofi Coburn, Iota Sumner over at Illinois, even though Illinois is still going to be a very good team, you're losing two pretty major stars there. So what you're seeing is all those stars that came back last year and made the league such a bear, now they've moved on. And that's not saying the league's going to be easy by any means. It's still going to be one of the best leagues in the country, maybe the best league in the country from top to bottom. A few new coaches, you know, who, who knows what Indiana's going to look like with Mike Woodson coaching now. It's, it's still going to be tough, but at the same to- at the same time, it's going to be I think more manageable for for a team like Nebraska that, that's trying to you know bump itself up in the middle of that pack and and get into contention for an NCAA tournament berth and things like that. So yeah, it's it's hard to see how the league <laughs> is any tougher than it is last year, but it's still going to be a tough one. You just hope for if you're Nebraska, it's not quite the grind it was a year ago. Do you think the expectation is everything's kind of back to normal? I know the recruiting gates open for all sports June 1st, and I know all coaches in all sports cannot wait to get back out and doing what they a lot of them love to do, and that's get into homes, get into gyms, watch guys play, do that type of stuff. And do you anticipate a fairly normal non-conference schedule for, for the Huskers come the, come the fall? I do. Yeah, I do. I think I think you'll see – normalcy really return like you said when we start seeing those official visits happening whether it's for basketball or football baseball volleyball whatever it may be that's going to be i think a big step toward returning to normalcy and and it'll only it should only improve as we go on you know as as the pandemic continues to subside as we continue to see vaccination spread and those sorts of things and then yeah having a a normal non-conference schedule, boy, that's going to feel great after the yeah. way last year looked for, for, for basketball and, and with no non-conference for baseball and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, those are just some of those, those milestones that you check off, right? Okay. We're back to recruiting. Recruits can come here. Now maybe we can travel to see some recruits in, in a couple months. Now we can get back to normal summer workouts. Now we have a normal non-conference schedule that we can announce, you know, in August or September and get ready for home games with fans again. So, yeah, bit by bit we get there, piece by piece we get there, and, and those are two of the first big ones, for, two of the first big things we'll, we'll check off. You mentioned the fans. How For two things, how much of a difference do you think it has made for baseball? And, and uh, were you at the spring game? I can't remember if I saw you at the spring. I was, football. I was, yeah. How, 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 what did that feel like to you to walk in there and see folks back in the stadium again? Yeah, you know, to me, it, it just felt so good. And, and I'll speak from a baseball standpoint, too, to, to see three or 4,000 and, and 5,000 in there uh, last Friday night. Just from my point of view, it felt good, and, and that felt normal. And I can't imagine what it felt like for the players and the coaches to be able to play in front of more than you know a couple dozen people, family and friends, and those sorts of things. That felt really good. Spring game felt really cool too. You kind of saw a little bit of the of the you know the spice return to downtown. A few people out tailgating, people in the stands enjoying themselves, hearing just hearing the sounds of the crowd, you know, you forget how much you miss those things and until you don't have them. And it, it made me think back to basketball season and just sitting in that empty arena night after night and, and not hearing the roars, not hearing the sounds of the crowd. And to hear that some of that return, 
man, it, it felt really, really good. And, and that's going to be a, another big part of this come this fall for football, of course, and volleyball and, and basketball. And we're already seeing it with baseball, just, just how much more fun and how much more enjoyable these games are with fans in the stands because it, it makes a huge difference being able to have even a few thousand people in there to watch. Totally agree with you, and, and I know I think they listed the football at 36,000. It seemed like 50 to me. I, it was just awesome to have them and seeing some cheerleaders and the f- little pep band there. It was just f- phenomenal to get that feeling back in there. And, I, and I've told this to a lot of people, Chris. I feel like, and yes, it was weird being in 80 and 90,000 seat stadiums with nobody there in football, but I thought the sport that got hurt the most by not having people around it and it affected it the most was college basketball because the fans are right on top of, of the teams and it's such a home court advantage in that sport because they're breathing down the necks of these guys. I, I thought that was that was to me the most bizarre thing of the last year was the empty arenas for hoops. Maybe it was just me. You were at a lot more games than I was, but it just to me that affected that sport more than anything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Greg. And, and you talk about how tough the Big Ten is and and how much does, of a difference does a full Pinnacle Bank Arena make for Nebraska last year. Maybe that swings two or three or four games in their favor at home that, that maybe they didn't win. And, and, you know, in some places you obviously had the artificial crowd noise, which I thought was as bizarre as anything else mm-hmm. uh, in a quiet arena. And, and even, you know, when we got down to the end of the year uh, for senior night and they and they let fans in, I remember the the women's basketball team came and watched the the men's final home game because they saw their game get postponed. I know some of the volleyball players stopped over to watch some of that. Even that made such a huge difference. And uh, you know, it's different, obviously, being in an open air football stadium and in, in an indoor basketball arena because, like you said, the fans are just right there on top of you. We all know how good yep. the the atmosphere in Pinnacle Bank Arena is when that place is rocking. So, yeah, it's, I think that you're right. It makes as much a difference, if not more, difference in that sport than any other. Absolutely. Well, Chris, appreciate it. Let's hope we play baseball. Let's hope everybody has knobs on the bottom of their bats for the weekend so we don't have to do that all over again. And let's have some fun the next couple weeks. I think this is going to be a fun little race down to the end of the wire here in the league. Yeah, I think you're right. It's going to shape up to be a fun few weeks. So thanks for having me, Greg, and we'll see you out at the ballpark. Tonight, it's the Nebraska Baseball Show, right here on the Husker Sports Network. Here's the 0-1 pitch. Runner takes off. The ball's hit through the right side, and that's going to win it for Nebraska. Gunnar Hellstrom comes through, and the Big Red take one from Indiana, winning 7-6 in walk-off fashion. An in-depth look at the Nebraska baseball program. Roscombe hits one in the air to left, hit pretty well, shoving slight near the line. He's to the wall, and that ball is gone! Luke Roscombe gets one out of here. It is a grand slam, and Nebraska has taken an 8-1 to lead on Luke Roscombe's bomb to left. With the head coach, Will Bolt. Zeal one pitch. Now it's popped up into foul territory on the right side. Schwellenbach waiting for it and makes the catch for the third out of the Huskers. Win this one in dramatic fashion in 13 innings. 7-6 over Rutgers as they improve to 23-11. And they win three games out of four in the Piscataway pod. How about that? Sponsored in part by your Midwest Ford dealers. Visit online at yourmidwestforddealers.com. Now here's your host of the Nebraska Baseball Radio Show, Ben McLaughlin. Thank you. Welcome to it. The Nebraska Baseball Radio Hour. We have Coach Bolt with us for the next hour on the show. You want to be a part of it? 531 536 
500-4686 is our Woodhouse Auto Family hotline, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. Taking your calls and texts over the next hour on the show. We're happy to welcome in now Husker head coach Will Bolt. Coach, man, what a weekend. There was, I don't know that there was anything we didn't see this last weekend. You've had about 24 hours to kind of wrap your head around it. How are you feeling uh, after everything that you witnessed in those last four games? Yeah, you said it. There was uh, a lot going on, and that's that's typically what you get in a in a four game series where uh, you're playing two different but really both really good teams in their own right, and um, just the travel that comes along with that. My first thought is I'm really tired, but it's also very uh, gratifying to come home um, feeling tired after a uh, three and one weekend. So. Um, Really proud of our guys and how they responded um, this week uh, to just the bounce back, really, um, and saw a lot of really positive things on the weekend. Yeah, I'm not even really sure to, to start with you, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I guess I guess we should probably just go so sequentially. Let's let's just start with Indiana, and I think the uh, the the a lot of the conversation around the media this week was, um, you know, the, the chance to even things up with Rutgers or at least get two back from those guys. And, and, and that's, that's hard to say because Indiana was leading the league and still is in, in terms of standings. Uh, when you were kind of putting your prep together this week, what did Indiana show you? And um, obviously, you know, started out the way that you wanted to with Cade and, you know, the rain delay, unfortunately took, took his, the rest of his start away. But what, what did you like about the way that your team executed the game plan against the Hoosiers specifically in that first game? Yeah, so obviously just in scouting the Hoosiers, I mean, they're they're a very complete team. I think just much like we are, uh, they've they've pitched it at an incredibly high level all year. They're a top 10 national um, ERA team, top team in the country in ter- terms of ERA. They don't, they don't give you a whole lot. I mean, they're not going to walk you. Uh, typically, they've played very good defense, um, especially of late, and the bats have really gotten going for them. So um, we knew it was going to be a very tall task, and – you know, just I think probably your your biggest thing is just getting off to the right foot on the weekend. Just a good start there with, um, you know, the first game. And I, I you could tell right away, Kay Povich was very determined. Um, he was very um, up to the task of, of pitching like a true ace. Um, I thought his stuff was really good. I thought the fastball was probably as good as we've seen in a while. Um, he had the, the breaking ball going um, just just very, very sharp early on and when you know the first opportunity we really had to set up an inning we got a, a bunt down and um scored both those runs in that inning and that was huge um after a first and second uh, sacrifice bunt so that's that's how our team has manufactured runs pretty much all year long and, and that's what you've got to do against a quality opponent like indiana and uh it was really unfortunate the way that the things kind of um, halted there with, with the with the rain delay because kate i think was on his way to having a really good outing um, I think he already had eight or nine punch outs and four and a third innings and just just looked really, really sharp and really determined. And just the, the length of the rain delay plus the, the length of the long inning right before the rain delay for our team, uh, there just was really no shot to send him back out there. So we knew it was going to be up to the bullpen to hold after that. And, and, and luckily we were able to, to do just enough on both sides of it to go ahead and finish it off. 
got to talk about Gunner. He he's he's come up big for you in a couple situations, and I knew there. You know, you know, we talked about it after the game the next day about what what, what the the mentality was there, really trying to win it there in the ninth inning, and you know what had to get a little creative. What you want to do defensively if things didn't bounce your way, but what has Gunner shown you particularly over the last few weeks, Coach? That that has given you confidence in him, even though he hasn't had the same amount of abs in a, in a real game as as everybody else. Well, again, Gunner, what you first point to is his character, his makeup, um, how good a teammate he is. I mean, those are all things, first and foremost, that make it really easy to root for a guy like that. And there's a lot of guys on our team that are just like that and, and that way. But Gunner's he's a special kid. I mean, he is a he is a Husker, you know, through and through. He, he's, he's gone from being a, a starter, an everyday player, to kind of a part-time player to – you know, this year he hasn't had a ton of at-bats, and he's just had a great attitude through it all. He's been a great teammate. Um, he shows up and takes very consistent BP um, and, and started to show some things in the live at-bats in the midweek that gave us an opportunity to feel like we, you know, we needed to get him in there. And I, and I probably should have done a better job earlier in the year of getting him in there in some pinch hitting spots uh, or at least maybe get, get him a spot start here and there. But like we've talked about, I mean, this has just been such a weird year um, with not having any midweek games and, and those type of things. And, and so he, he just stayed ready. He worked and stayed ready. And, um, you know, in that particular spot, you know, we took an offensive timeout right there, kind of walked it through with Coach Harvell and what he was thinking about um, how we were going to play out that, that inning as first and third and one out. And, I, you know, I was like, hey, I think we need a pinch hit gunner here. Coach Harvell was in agreement. We kind of talked through it and said, hey, we're going to we're gonna hit and run at some point. We felt like Gunner was the best guy, um, you know, for that job. I mean, the, their, their reliever that was on the mound, I believe, had not allowed a run all year. Um, so, you know, he's got a good sinking fastball at 95, 96. And, and Gunner kind of got a ball that was kind of running in on his hands. And he's probably one of the few guys on our roster that can – not only get to that fastball, but get the barrel to that fastball and the ball riding in on him like that. And um, it was a pretty cool moment for him, a great moment for our team, and just really excited, you know, to get to, to get off on the right the right foot for the weekend and, and beat a quality opponent like Indiana. He's gonna have when his college career is over. He's gonna have some pretty fond memories of, of that field. He had a five hit game there as a freshman, and then had the walk off there against Indiana. It was a cool moment for him. Um, and then game two against Indiana, I mean, Nick and I kind of talked about it on the broadcast. They get six hits in the first inning, and you know, a couple of those are just hard-hit ground balls that found holes. If they're 10 feet to the left or right, they could have been double plays. Unfortunately for us, those four runs held on the board. We hit some balls hard just right at guys, and it, it just seemed like one of those games, Coach, that you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go, that's baseball. You're obviously disappointed in the loss, but um, you couldn't have been too displeased with what you saw in game two against Indiana. No, you're right, and you know we made the decision to go Shea there, and obviously that that first inning didn't go didn't really go the way we needed it to go, especially against a good opponent like that. I mean, their their starter um, was the conference leader in ERA and still is after that game, and um, we knew it was going to be a tall task to to string together a big inning against a guy like that, and so you know a tough start to the game there um, where. They just, you know, they found a lot of holes. They found a lot of barrels, though, at the same time. So um, I thought Shea did settle in and gave us, you know, a chance to win. You're chasing four runs, but it's only four runs at the end of the day. And we gave ourselves a shot there by the seventh inning and, and put together um, a little bit of a late rally and had the, the 
tying run at the plate when the game ended. Um, and again, it's one of those games, like you said, it's baseball. It's two good teams going at it. Um, you know, they made some really good defensive plays. We had some balls hard with nothing to show for it. Um, they were ready to hit, uh, ready, really determined offensively in that game in that first inning. And that was the difference. And, um, you know, the message was, is that I, 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 we weren't disappointed that we lost. I mean, of course we're disappointed that we lost, but we weren't disappointed in how we played. I think there were probably some moments along the way that maybe we could have handled just a little Mm -hmm. bit better in terms of, um, you know, just staying in the fight. Um, and we got back in the fight, but it was the seventh inning. And at that point it was just a little bit too little, too late. And, but the good news is that we carried that, that fight from the seventh inning on, uh, into the second game of the, of the doubleheader. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the first inning, I think he, he had runners on second and third with one out. And I don't know that there was an inning in the first half of that game that you guys didn't put pressure on Rutgers. And that's the same kid that, that you saw, um, in Lincoln, and he had some pretty good success against us last week. I was joking around with Mr. Roach, Chance's dad, and you know uh, after the, after the fact, but tough task for both Chance and, and their guy Teller to have to face the same lineup that you just saw less than a week prior. Um, let's just start with Chance before we get into the nuts and bolts of that game. What you saw from him, and what maybe he had to change because you you know they had ev- they had they had seen everything he had in his repertoire to that point and had to run run out there again and try and get you a lengthy start. Yeah, I thought Chance gave us a really um, veteran professional start. I thought he was he was good. The ball sinking, um, and again, he's going to give up some hits now and again. Um, but when he's going good, the hits are going to be singles. They're going to be ground balls that find a way through the hole. Um, he's going to limit the extra base hits. I felt like he had the sinker going again. Uh, maybe the slider wasn't quite as good, and you know, not to give him an out at all, but the weather conditions probably played a little bit into that. I mean, both pitchers are throwing in some pretty much rain for most of the game. Um, but again, the difference in that game was our defense. I mean, we made several mm-hmm. uh, run saving plays with diving plays, Max Anderson with a great play at third base to save a run and to save an extra base hit. Camp Chick makes a diving play to get us off the field that would have scored a run if he doesn't make that catch and uh, turn some double plays. I mean, just, I mean, we played, I I will say this, the thing that we did this weekend that was so good to see in a four-game set when you're going on the road and you're um, having a bounce back from a rough weekend the weekend before, our defense this whole entire weekend was absolutely outstanding. And that's that's what we've seen from this group, uh, this team, um, for the majority of this season. And, you know, you've got to do that behind chance because he's not going to be a guy that's going to punch out a ton of hitters. The ball's going to be in play, but his ball was sinking. Um, and, and he was able to limit the damage in terms of extra base hits because of that, and we played exceptional defense behind him. Yeah, and, and not really easy conditions to play good defense. You saw both teams that you faced this weekend had five errors in at least one of the games, which, which is a very high number. A lot of it's what you want to do offensively to put pressure on them, but at the same time, um, Nebraska did a really good job handling the ball this weekend. And the other thing that was interesting about it, Coach, and it was kind of in the back of my mind, more so in the first game or two than it was games three and four. But, you know, you and I were chatting before the first game, and the first time you took ground balls on that field was about a half hour before the, before you had played. That that can't be easy for the guys, you know, to not really know how turf's playing and, you know, how what the outfield structure's like, how much room you have in foul ground, some of that other stuff that you get, you know, the benefit and the practice the night before or at least on the field for BP. You didn't really have that opportunity. It made it a little more impressive and, um, you know, it seemed like the guys handled that part of it the right way. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and just just to that to that point exactly, like you, you know, you like to have a team that feels like you're not going to make any excuses based on what the circumstances are. And you know, with a long travel day and us getting in late and then the rain and the game before us, we just didn't have any chance at all to get on that field at all. But credit to our guys. I mean, they were very determined, very focused. Um, and, and like you said, sometimes when you get in those games where the other team may be kicking around a little bit, the game gets a little bit sloppy. Um, it, it, the baseball tends to, I guess, just you feed off each other, whether it's your own team or the other team sometimes, where sometimes games feel like they settle into pitcher's duels. Sometimes they settle in to be kind of sloppy games and, and other times they're slugfests and, and our, our guys, we made it about us this weekend. And that, that was really, to me, what we needed to get back to, what we needed to see and, uh, playing, um, the, the caliber of defense that we played this weekend is what we're capable of. And that was really good to see us get back to that. Coach Bolt joining us here on our Nebraska baseball radio hour. And we talked a little bit about that first game. Luke Roscom had the big grand slam in that one. That's good time to talk about our first text of the night. U.S. Cellular text line. Proud to be the official wireless sponsor of the Huskers U.S. Cellular connecting Husker Nation Coach Eric and Lincoln says, great weekend. Has Luke Roscom changed anything with his approach lately? Seems like he's seeing the ball the best he's ever seen it in his career. Have always loved his ability to hit the ball the opposite field. Good question. And we talked a little bit about that with Luke this year. Um, I feel like with him, he's just really simplified his approach and his mechanics for that matter. Um, maybe what you've seen from Luke over the course of his career because he is a student of the game and he knows the game and he, he likes to look at video and some of those things at times he probably has tinkered with his setup and his swing and maybe even his approach probably more than he should where, um, you know, you, you know, you may be doing something right and you think, well, if I just do this, I can be even better. Or, you know, you may read, read too much into just a bad at bat or two and think, well, I just need to make some over, you know, some overhauls here uh, mechanically or with my approach. And, and what we've really seen from Luke this year is just his um, – he hasn't wavered from what his approach is at the plate. And, and there's been a couple of moments there where it's tested him, um, where so like the pitchers maybe have adjusted to him a little bit. Um, but, but what he's done is he's just been um, steadfast in what he does, and he's just not really wavered from that much. And if you notice, you just kind of look at the – maybe if you just see some some of the games either in person or if you're watching at home, uh, especially with a center field camera angle, like he's just, he's been very consistent with his mechanics this year. Um, he hasn't changed things. He hasn't deviated. He has not tinkered, you know, with a, a different approach or a different uh, setup at the plate. So, um, you know, it just has allowed him to be, to have a foundation with which, which he does every day. And so, um, to me, that's where being a good hitter comes into play is you just have to have that foundation. You have to have something you go to day in and day out and say, hey, I'm going to do this. And if the pitcher makes his pitches, you tip your cap to him. Uh, but if he's going to beat me, he's going to have to beat me on my terms. And that, to me, um, is what Luke Roskam has done this year. Um, and he's not trying to hit home runs, which it's funny how that works. He's, he's hit more home runs he's ever hit in his career because he's just trying to stay in the big part of the field consistently. Just off and rolling with Coach Bolt, Nebraska Baseball Radio Hour. Keep those calls and texts coming into the show. We'll take some more uh, throughout the program tonight. Buckle up and put the phone down. A reminder from the NDOT Highway Safety Office. We'll take our first break. We've got more with Coach Bolt coming up next.
Here we are. We're back for Hour 3. Sports Island here on a Tuesday night. Hope you enjoyed last hour. Hearing from the head coach, Will Bolt. Huskers coming off that 3-1 and one weekend at the Pod in Piscataway, splitting with Indiana, taking both games from Rutgers, including that marathon 13-inning match yesterday. Huskers back in action Friday night. Haymarket Park, 6.30, first pitch against Northwestern. Tickets went on sale today. There are still some available for the weekend Huskers.com is the place to go find those tickets. All right, coming up this hour, Top 10 Tuesday, and we'll talk to Tyler Merriam, the voice of the Jackrabbits. South Dakota State set to play Sam Houston State Sunday in the FCS championship game down in Frisco, Texas. South Dakota State has never won a national football title. Uh, they have a chance to this week, and they will probably be the favorite. They were the number one seed, Sam Houston State, the number two seed. Should be a great matchup on Sunday afternoon. Let's get the hour going, though, with Top Ten. We think them up. We count them down. It's Top Ten Tuesdays on Sports Nightly. Well, this is a topic that Mr. Orman came up with. Give me the... uh, the basis for this, what made you come up with this topic and tell everybody what it is? Well, my family and I were reminiscing a couple weeks ago just about some of the, the football games we've been to and a lot of the first Husker sporting events that I remember going to were, you know, the mid-2000s era, and that got me thinking of, you know, some of those guys that, that played back then. I'll tease a couple names on my list, Nate Swift and Alex March, a couple guys I really remember, and guys we don't, you know, hear brought up all that much. And then we're talking about college football games. Nate Swift was my go-to guy in college football games from playing against my brothers, so... Just a lot of great Husker athletes, I think, that don't get their recognition all the time that have been, you know, pretty solid players, have put up good numbers, but, you know, they, for lack of team success, they didn't spend four years here, whatever reason. They just kind of slip through the cracks sometimes. Very good. All right. Well, since you put this together, why don't you lead us off? Sure. Absolutely. Number 10 for me, I start on the hardwood women's basketball's Kiera Hardy. She's the mm. women's basketball program's number six all-time leading scorer. The reason I think she's underappreciated, though, is she played 2004 to 2007 right before those great teams, the one that won the Big 12, made that Sweet 16 run in the NCAA tournament. So for her career, she ends up at 1,930 points, passed not long after by Kelsey Griffin and then Jordan Hooper after her. So Kira Hardy, I think, really helped set the table for that great Nebraska team, those great really good couple years there in the mid to late 2000s, early 2010s. Goes under the radar, but I think really helped set the table. Oh, she was a tremendous player, great score, uh, good Really good player for Connie Yori on those teams. All right, my number, not my number 10, I'm going to the baseball diamond, and it's a guy's name that I actually mentioned last week on Faceoff. I've got Dylan Vogt here, who had one really good year as the closer, the back-end guy for the Husker baseball team. He just was pretty solid. Didn't have any blow-away pitches, but he just could get guys out with multiple pitches and just did a heck of a job for a season as Darren Erstad's closer. So Dylan Vogt, to me, Ben is uh, makes my list of number 10. The thing I remember about Dylan Vote is you, you say closer, but there was a lot of games where he had to come in in the sixth inning, yeah. seventh inning, and he would just have to finish it because he was Nebraska's best option, and he was so reliable. He was a part of that combined no-hitter against Arkansas. Yeah, he good pick, really good pick. You're up. Okay, cool. Uh, my number 10, I'm sticking in women's sports, but I'm going to the softball diamond here. I'm going Alicia Armstrong, mm. shortstop for 
um, Coach Ravel. She was a, a freshman the year that Nebraska made the Women's College World Series. And, you know, when you think about that team, obviously the Edwards sisters, they were both All-Americans. Emily Lockman was um, an all-conference pitcher. And, you know, even Brooke Thomason was a senior. She was a captain. I think Alicia would get kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit, but she was a really good player on that team. And as a freshman to start at shortstop and hit the way that she did in the postseason, um, definitely worth a spot on my list. And then obviously with her career, uh, one of one of the toughest Husker athletes to ever put on a uniform, playing with a broken back in the Super Regional against Alabama the next year. For those that watched that game, I remember watching that game at TD Ameritrade Park um, during the Big Ten tournament of her getting treatment on the dugout bench in between innings and just trying to get it so she could get out to the field the next inning. So, yeah, without a doubt, Alicia Armstrong, worthy of a spot on my list. Okay, my uh, number 10, and I should be clear, uh, I, I picked exclusively Husker football players. I guess instructions were unclear again. What do you know? Tim, Tim Curran Tim, you're screwing up a top 10 <laughs> I, uh, list yet again. I, I, asked a que- I asked a question to Greg, and he, he did answer me. So <laughs> y- you can get clarification if you want. Well, yeah, if you want to, but who wants that? Uh, my number 10, I've got Larry Asante, the, the, the Husker safety, really versatile, reliable player, started 36 of his 39 games in three seasons with NU. Uh, the dude knew how to hit, and that probably was because he was an ex-linebacker when he was at Coffeyville Community College. Um, as a guy, I really, really enjoyed playing. In fact, he had 224 career tackles. That's third most in school history among defensive backs. So, uh, a guy that, well, he's not underrated by me. Uh, he's number 10 on my list, but but number one in my heart, Larry Asante. <laughs> not Jeez. underrated. He's all the way down at number 10. I think <laughs> you did underrate him. Maybe. Maybe. All right. I'll stick on the hardwood for my number nine. Pretty recent name, Isaac Copeland. And for me, he's underappreciated because we didn't get to see him for all that long. Really only a year and just over a half at Nebraska. And I think you can really see the impact he had on that team because of how it cratered after he had that knee injury. They're playing really well. They smashed Seton Hall. They beat Creighton, go on the road, take the Big Ten ACC Challenge game from Clemson. Copeland gets hurt. There's a seven-game losing streak, a four-game losing streak the back half of that year. Nebraska's depth war thin, starting with Copeland at the end of the year. They're just piecemealing it together. But you could really see how key Copeland was to that team, switching between the four and the five, 13.6 rebounds a night, steady long-range shooter, about 36%, guy that could finish plays pretty well. I think we're going to look back in a couple of years. I mean, kind of did wonder what if, but, man, that Nebraska team was playing some really good basketball before Isaac Copeland went down 2018-19. Okay, very good. My number nine, my first football player, and it's a guy that Ben talked to at the spring game, and it's Divine Azigbo. Nebraska had gone a couple of seasons without a 1,000-yard back. Ozigbo able to bust through in year one under Scott Frost, and I think we've seen how valuable he was in the year since he left with Nebraska never able to quite get that balance going again in their running game. And Devine still kind of hanging around in the National Football League. I don't know a lot of people would have thought that was going to happen for him. So Devine Ozigbo on my list at number nine. Good pick. Big Devine Ozigbo fan. My number nine, I'm going back to the baseball diamond. I'm going back to pitchers, but I'm going Kyle Kubot here at number mm, nine. Okay. Kyle is a guy that, uh, I mean, man, he really pitched well one year. He he couldn't buy a win. He just absolutely could not buy a win. He couldn't get any runs of support. He'd constantly come out and throw seven innings, quality start after quality start. Um, you know, had an interesting path at times, you know, had a hard time getting ready at the beginning of seasons, but toward the tail end of the year, he had a really good start in the Big Ten tournament one year, 
um, just a really reliable left-handed pitcher, and that's what he was. That's the thing that I, I remember most about Kyle is he wasn't a guy that could blow you away with stuff either, but he had multiple pitches he could throw for strikes and just, just a competitive dude out there. So I've got Kubot here at number nine. All right, my number nine, I've got uh, Amani Cross, actually. Greg just spoke about one running back. I've got another. Uh, Cross was an absolute load. Six foot one, 240 pounds. Uh, dude was beefy. Had over 1,600 yards rushing uh, and also just was reliable to find the end zone, at least five touchdowns in every one of those seasons. Now, granted, a lot of those carries came from like three, four yards out, but still, uh, like a just a bulldozer. 28 total rushing touchdowns in his career. And a guy I'd, I'd kind of forgot about until I started researching um, who to put on underrated Husker list. And I think he definitely qualifies. I mean, he's a guy that just was reliable week in, week out, and that's why he is my number nine, Monty Cross. All right, my number eight's already been mentioned just a moment ago by Greg. I've got Divino Zigbo up here at number eight for all the reasons Greg said. Okay, wow. Very good. All right, my number eight, I, I'm going to the hardwood for this one, and it's Lance Jeter. I really love oh, Lance Jeter. Pick. I thought he was a terrific point guard for Doc Sadler's team. He was a load to stop. He's had an amazing career playing in Europe, still playing over there. Uh, but, boy, when he got going north-south, nobody was going to stop him. He was great, a great finisher at the rim for Nebraska, and a team that probably should have been an NCAA tournament team. They kicked a late-season game that year to Texas A&M that probably kept them out of the tournament. But Lance Jeter makes my list at number eight. I love that pick. I love me some Lance Jeter. Really wish I would have put him on my list. By the way, my, my strategy was I, I wasn't going to try and outthink the room here because <laughs> trying to – I mean, I could have come up with 50 names, but I, I just tried to come up with the ones that I first thought of because – you know, uh, it's impossible to order these at times. So I'm going actually hardwood to, to number eight as well, the men's basketball. I'm going Dylan Talley here at number eight. Dylan was a part of some interesting Husker teams, the end of the Doc era and the start of the Tim Miles era. And that year where he and Brandon Ubell had to single-handedly carry the team, Dylan had to shoot so many times and just to keep Nebraska in games and was just a really humble, humble player and just good dude. So... Uh, and good, really good basketball player. So I've got Dylan Talley here at number eight. I miss watching him play. All right, uh, sticking with the gridiron because all my picks are from the gridiron. My number eight, Stanley Jean-Baptiste. Maybe only underrated in the sense that he never got as much acclaim as Alfonso Denard or Prince of Mucamera, but was an absolutely solid corner. And there was no doubt about that. Super lengthy as well, six foot three. He had four picks his senior season, 41 tackles that year as well. Uh, dude was a disruptor with the DBs. So Stanley Jean-Baptiste, my number eight. All right, number seven for me, another basketball player. I've got Glenn Watson Jr. here. I think Nebraska basketball could really use a guy like him. And I think Glenn's a guy that a lot of people can point to. They know his name, but he came to Nebraska as a four-star recruit overall by 24-7's composite, 96.9 overall rating. And for a guy that highly rated, he was never the feature guy at Nebraska playing on teams with Andrew White, Siobhan Shields, Ty Webster had a really good year, James Palmer Jr. comes in. He was never really in the spotlight. He was solid. He was steady. Not an ego guy. Stuck it out for all four years despite never really being the number one headlining star. I think he had some more in there. He probably could have taken that leap, but I think he's a guy that sacrificed a lot for the team and could fit in pretty well on pretty much any Nebraska basketball team in history. Okay. That was G's personality, too. I mean, he was just such a good teammate. And, he, and as you mentioned, Austin, he wasn't an overly chatty guy. And I think that kind of replicated on the floor. He was just unselfish the right. way that he played and um, just a really fun guy to be around. It, it, that was the cool part about him is he was always shy, but you started to see him 
get a little bit more personality by the time that he was done here as a senior. I really enjoyed being around him. Okay. Again, we're doing our underappreciated Huskers from the last two decades, so not, not going past further back than that here on our top ten list. My number seven is my first female, and it's Dominique Kelly, who was a part of that undefeated Husker team 11, 12 years ago. She never was first or second team all Big 12, but always a starter, great defender, 1,000-point score in her career, led the team in, in their Sweet 16 matchup in 2010 against Kentucky. So Dominique Kelly makes my list at number seven. My number seven was going on my list regardless. He is one of my all-time favorite black shirts. That's Dejon Gomes. I wish we got more time watching him play. He was always around the ball, part of those great Bo Pelini defenses, some of the best defenses that this program has had in a long, long, long time. He had some big turnovers, some big takeaways, junior college kid, um, so it didn't get him for very long. But, man, was he fun to watch. He was he was the perfect fit for what, what they wanted to do. So Gomes here at number seven. Okay, my number seven, I've got Eric Haig. Two seasons with Nebraska, starring 26 to 27 games at safety. Was second on the team in tackles in 2012 and 96. He also had four tackles for loss and a sack that year. 176 tackles in his two seasons. That's not a bad total. Also, I think he had that 95-yard like kick return, or rather field goal block kind of return against Texas. That was pretty neat as well. So Eric Haig, my number seven. I stick with football rounding out the back half of my top 10. Tommy Armstrong Jr., former Nebraska quarterback. He's at the top of so many Nebraska passing leaderboards, an absolute gamer. Bit of a wild ride at times, 67 career passing touchdowns, 44 interceptions. But you could pretty much count on Tommy being out there game in, game out. I'll never forget his touchdown run to help Nebraska beat Oregon back my freshman year of college. A guy that I think we'll look back on and say, yeah, these, no, he's a pretty darn good quarterback. He'd have been really good, I think, in this Frost offense yes. running this thing. I think he just missed missed the, the wrong head coach at the end of his career. All right, my number six, I've got Trevor Roach. And some of you may be going, Trevor Roach? He was a <laughs> linebacker from Elkhorn, and he got hurt before one season, and Nebraska was really in a bind for a lack of bodies in that inside backer position. But he went on to play a couple of seasons in the National Football League with the Bengals. He was just a steady, hard-nosed player, that, I mean, you have to be pretty tough to hang in the NFL for a couple of years, which he did. So Trevor Roach makes my list at number six. I can't remember if it was an Achilles or a knee with him, but it was yeah. a non-contact thing. Yep. He was working out at his high school. Just terrible luck. All right, my number six, I, we heard from one hu former Husker quarterback. I'm going to another. I'm going Jamal Lord here at number six. Mm -hmm. Jamal was, was the unlucky guy that had to follow the national championship appearance teams, and Nebraska just couldn't quite win at the clip that they used to. He was still a really good, productive quarterback. It's just he got a bad rap because they didn't win as many games, and I, and I always enjoyed watching him play. My uncle was a GA at the time, so I was a big, a big Husker fan, obviously. So I've got Jamal Lord here at number six. My number six, I've got Zaire Anderson, one of the better black shirts, uh, kind of the mid-2010s. Led them in tackles in 2014. Also had 10 tackles per game in conference play senior year. Uh, he caused a lot of fumbles or covered a lot of them as well. Had a lot of tackles for loss, a couple sacks. He was a disruptor, a great linebacker. My number six, Zaire Anderson. Played on a tour at ACL's freshman year, by the way. Yeah. That he did. Sure did. Uh, quick update on the Trevor Roach thing. Looked it up. He had a Liz Frank injury, a tear in his foot. Mm, yeah, is what go. got him. All right, on to the top half of the top ten. Number five for me has already been mentioned. Greg had him at number eight. This is where I've got Lance Jeter. I kind of equate him to the Levante David of the men's basketball team. Only seen him for two years. 
tears up records, absolute game record for Nebraska on the offensive end. Pretty solid in defense as well. Good spot-up shooter, another guy I'd love to see in Fred Hoiberg's current system. But, yeah, carved out a great career overseas. Yeah, no doubt. All right, my number five, Ben had at seven. Here's where I have Deshaun Gomes. Just loved his game. Kind of lived in the shadow of Prince and Alfonso Dinard. But, boy, was he a terrific player, always around the football, made plays, uh, terrific defender. And he played a little bit in the NFL as well. So, Gomes makes my list at five. All right, my number five, I've got my Husker volleyball player here. I'm going Justine Wongarantes here at number Mm -hmm. five. She was just a phenomenal defender. I mean, she was obviously libero and had she she just dug balls that – no one else. It didn't seem like anybody else could get up off the floor. She was fantastic. Obviously, national champion. Um, just a fantastic player. I really enjoyed watching her, and what a weapon John Cook had back there. And a lot. Not, the, the liberos, defensive specialist types, don't get a lot of love. Usually, it's the the middles or the outside hitters. But um, Justine was just a phenomenal player. My number five, I've got Eric Martin, if only for that hit where he absolutely clobbered a man uh, in Oklahoma <laughs> State and Stillwater. So great, great black shirt as well, but also because he could clobber the crap out of people so my number five eric martin all right number four for me has been mentioned by both ben and greg this is where i've got dejon gomes he's a guy that i think again just a year or two maybe a couple years ahead of his time played a lot in the slot if he's around now he's still shadowing slot corners to this day great player love watching him sure was all right my number four i'm going back to the baseball diamond and this will test people a little bit rich sanguinetti i just oh what a pull what a pull the way he played center field, he glided out there. He made great catch after great catch. Solid hitter for the Huskers. But like some of those guys on all of our lists, only a two-year player in Nebraska coming out of a junior college. But love Rich Sanguinetti in center field. Yeah, two things that stick out about Rich. One, he came from Texarkana, where Will yep. Bolt was from. And I remember he had a walk-off. I don't know if it was a grand slam, but he had a walk-off home run up in Minneapolis one game. Man, he was a he was a competitive, fiery dude, too. I was a big Rich Sanguinetti guy. All right, my number four, I'm going to the hardwood. I've got Paul Volander here at number four. <laughs> How many years have we said, why can't we get a guy like Paul Volander to just knock down threes? <laughs> um, so, yeah, his name still comes up. Paul Volander from Blacksburg, Virginia. Just a dude that could absolutely stroke it. Nebraska career top ten three-pointers made. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason why his name still gets thrown around here. Is people <laughs> could shoot like him. So uh, give me Paul, Paul V here at number four. All right, my number four, a guy that's probably not underrated, but I threw him on here anyway. I had Roy Hallou Jr. here. Rushed for over 1,000 yards in his final two seasons, 28 total touchdowns. Uh, and also, I love him for how he torched Mizzou in that game. Holy cow, that was a fun game to watch, I think, back in 2010 or 2009, whatever that was. It was great. My number four, Roy Hallou. I got a little fired up on the call that game. You did, I yeah. lost <laughs> my voice in the first quarter. I was, I was ready to beat the Tigers that day. <laughs> Hard to blame you. All right, I'll get my first volleyball player on the list here at number three, Ani Albright. When you think of the 2015 and 17 Uh national championship teams, you think Fecky, you think Hunter, you think Maloney. But her senior year, Ani Albright was a captain, played all six rotations, really helped unlock a lot of her teammates. She's one of only three players to play every possible set in her career in the John Cook era. She was the skeleton key to a lot of what those 15 and 17 teams did. All right, I'm going hardwood here with my number three, Jason DeRusso, guy from the Omaha area. What a smooth player. Loved his game. Played, I think, both for Collier and Sadler. He may have just hung it up from playing ball in Europe for a number of years, but I just loved his game, the way he glided through the lane, could take it to the cup. 
uh, pretty good defender. He was long. Just loved a lot of a lot of aspects of his game. So Jason DeRusso makes my list at three. We've my- had some fantastic pulls tonight, boys. That's a, that's, a, that's a good one. Played at Burke. Played against my cousin Burke. at Burke, and he's a huge Husker basketball fan, by the way. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, my number three. I'm going running back here. I'm going Marlon Lucky here mm-hmm. at number three. Five star player. Obviously, a tons of hype. Just came. <laughs> just a brutal, brutal time to be at Nebraska. So all kinds of hype. He was still very productive. I mean, he caught a ton of passes. Was not a great fit for the offense and just kind of got lumped into the, to the Callahan era there. But um, I always thought kind of thought that guy got a bad rap statistically. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I never covered him, wasn't around. don't know what type of dude he was, but on the field statistically, I felt like he kind of got thrown to the woodshed unnecessarily a lot of times. All right, my number three, this is where I've got Seathan Carter, 59 receptions. It's the fifth most for a tight end, I believe, in program history. Also a fantastic blocker and still, I believe, in the NFL with the Dolphins. So there you go, my number three. Yeah. All right, I've got another pass catcher here at number two, wide receiver name I mentioned. At the start of the segment, Nate Swift. A lot of high-volume guys in the last decade for Nebraska, but it was Nate Swift who's really the go-to guy for three of his four years here at Nebraska. He fell just a couple catches short of breaking Johnny Rogers' single-season receiving yards mark before Stanley Morgan finally did it. Also just three yards short of Johnny the Jets' career mark, 22 touchdowns on 166 catches. Kind of similar to Jordan Westerkamp is almost who I'd relate him to from more current Husker. But Nate Swift, one of the first Huskers I remember, a guy that we kind of gloss over when we talk about Husker receiving records. Make it back-to-back. That's where I've got Nate Swift on my list, too. Just Mr. Steady, always where he needed to be, great route runner, very dependable for the quarterbacks to find. He and Joe Gans had great chemistry. So Nate Swift, my list, number two. Love that. All right, my number two, I'm going back to the baseball diamond here. I had two baseball players. This is my second one, and he's also a left-handed pitcher. I've got Tony Watson here at number two. Tony Watson obviously lived in Jabba's shadow, but, I mean, you've got – uh, a couple of th- three big league arms on that roster with Dan Jennings, with Jabba Chamberlain. Tony Watson's not a guy that I think is remembered. And I think part of it's because of his personality. He wasn't overly flamboyant, kind of a quiet dude, but still pitching in the big leagues and was a huge mm-hmm. part to Nebraska's success in the mid-2000s. So Tony Watson, partly because I'm just a huge fan of his, my number two. <laughs> <laughs> my number two, um, this is where I've got Niles Paul, actually. Um, yeah, had some notable blunders in his in his career here at Nebraska, but uh, was always better, I think, than um, you know, his potential led on. I mean, in the NFL, he actually had a decent little career, switched to tight end, really bulked up, got huge, and uh, somewhere I think in my parents' house still, I have Niles Paul's glove from the Iowa State game in Ames where Nebraska won in overtime, or rather I think it was like a uh, Iowa State went for two at the very end. But uh, anyway. That's Were right. You there? My brother actually, yeah, I was there, but my brother actually wrestled it from some eight-year-old. <laughs> he snagged <laughs> oh, it from a kid because now Paul tosses his glove out. So that uh, kid has never recovered. From never that has. Snatch. <laughs> never has. Also, he has tiny hands. Fun fact. Uh, but number two, Niles Paul. <laughs> All right, number one for me, tangentially related to someone already mentioned on the list. I've got Brandon Jackson, former Nebraska football running back, only at Nebraska for three years because he was good enough to get drafted in the second round by Green Bay. Solid freshman year, pretty quiet his sophomore year, then a huge junior year. 1,300 all-purpose yards, 10 touchdowns, overshadowed by Marlon Lucky. Split carries with Cody Glenn, too, before Cody Glenn moved to linebacker. But he was in the NFL for six years. Pretty good year in 2010 after Ryan Grant goes down with an injury, plays in the Super Bowl. He's a guy that I think, if he was the feature back, more people would have known his name. But playing with Marlon Lucky overshadowed a little bit, but still a great Husker carved out a solid NFL career. 
No doubt. He sure did. Again, we're wrapping up our underappreciated Huskers since the turn of the century. And I, mine has been mentioned. Ben had him at six. I have Jamal Lord. I think Jamal Lord was a tremendous quarterback. He <laughs> just doesn't get a lot of play from people when they start he listening to great. He for no reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I love the guy. I got him number one on my list. Good pick. All right, my number one is just to stick it to all the national people. Everyone here appreciated him, but he's still getting hosed in the NFL. Levante David, number one. Can we get this man some love? Come on. Dude's a freak. Finally won a ring. That's the only thing I'm, I'm ever glad that Tom Brady ever did was get help me get Levante David a ring. So Levante David, fantastic player, good dude, deserves way more credit than he ever get from anybody. So dubiously underrated sure uh my number one i've got quincy anunwa here had a relatively so start to his career but really grew into his role had that 99 yard touchdown receptions against george in the gator bowl also broke uh johnny heisman's uh single season uh, touchdown reception record with 12 tutties so also with the jets for a couple of years unfortunately injuries cut that short but uh quincy Anunwa, my number one Good, good list, guys. That was great. We threw a lot of really good, fun names out there to reminisce about, so hope everybody enjoyed that. When we come back, we'll talk some FCS football. Their championship game's coming up on Sunday. South Dakota State's in there. We'll talk to their play-by-play man, Tyler Merriman, next. Greg Shar back with you here on a Tuesday night sports island here on the Husker Sports Network. Glad you're with us here for a few more minutes until the top of the hour. Well, there is college football, meaningful college football that's been going on. I have really had a blast watching some of the FCS playoff action the last couple of weeks of the championship game coming up on Sunday down in Frisco, Texas. And a guy who's going to be on the call for this, Tyler Merriam from South Dakota State joins us now. Tyler, hey, how are you? How you doing? I am doing really well, Greg. How are you? I'm I'm great. It's it's. I know it's probably been odd for you and and your compatriots at the FCS level to be calling games this time of year. But I got to tell you, I have loved watching some college football here in the spring. I think it's kind of been a mixed bag. There certainly have been some some fun and unique elements to it. I think there's been a level of attention on it that, while it's always important. I mean, let's face it, the FBS is always going to be a rank above the FCS, and so this year there's been a little more a spotlight on it in the spring by the same token it is a little weird you know like you said that you're worrying about uh, conference basketball tournaments and regular season football at the same time that's not supposed to happen but uh, uh but it's been neat uh, the weather's cooperated for the most part and and uh, and i tell you what it's been uh, as you know from the fall and from dealing with the uh, sports in Huskerland as well it's been quite an undertaking for all of us to pull this off and to get to this point is something special Jack Rabbit's the number one seed, and boy, you barely got out of one of those rounds. Southern Illinois gave you all you wanted, but I thought you kind of looked more normal last week against Delaware. Assess for us what you've seen from the team as they've made their way through the playoffs. Well, the thing coming into the year about this team was they were going to be very good defensively. The question was who was going to be the quarterback, and you and I talked about this when we thought we'd be playing each other about 10 months ago, I recall. Uh, There were two guys who had started at times the year before, and then there was this true freshman named Mark Radowski. And the way things worked out, those other two individuals uh, fell into some contact tracing issues, and Gronowski kind of got a head start in preseason camp and never let go of the position. And before they made a decision, multiple guys went to head coach John Sniggelmeyer and said, hey, 
this true freshman out of the Chicago area, he's got to be the guy. And so he's got some moxie and poise, and they gave him the, the keys to the car, and then they developed this two-running back system with a, a speedy guy that hits the edge in Pierre Strong Jr. and more of a straight-downhill guy in Isaiah Davis. And since they've really mastered their offensive identity in the middle of the year, they've been very, very difficult to stop. And that defense has played so well, and uh, the combination has really made things difficult. The, the defensive line really is the strength of the team, even though the numbers might not show it because they let the back seven make all the tackles, and you never see an offensive lineman on them. So it truly has been a team effort from top to bottom, and it's been impressive to watch them come along. And, and like you said, they had that one scare against a team that knows them so well. It's hard to beat a team twice in one year, and they managed to get by. Again, visiting with Tyler Merriam, the voice of the Jackrabbits, South Dakota State, will play for a national championship Sunday in Frisco against Sam Houston State. What's been the reaction of the fan base? Are they fired up about this? Are they, are, are they going to be traveling well to Texas to, to support the team this weekend? What, what are you sensing on the ground? The amount of tickets we were allowed, which is less than normal, but it was just under 4,000 sold out in less than 30 hours. Mm. So it went very, very quickly. And uh, there's a lot of excitement because, again, this is something that, while it's been long talked about, the Jacks have been to the semifinals two previous times. They've never made it to the national championship game. And while most people, of course, hope this is the beginning of multiple trips, you never know how these things go. So you have to relish every one of them. There's a lot of people who, even if maybe they weren't fully in on this in February and March, they're not about to miss out. And so there'll be a great contingent of Jackrabbit fans down there. And there is a lot of excitement because this thing is built. You know, it wasn't this Cinderella run. They were the number one seed coming in. All the playoff games were at home. Uh, two of them on national TV, which, again, in an FCS, isn't anywhere as normal as every game's available on ESPN or ABC if you're Nebraska. So with all that, it really has continued to light the fire, and there's a ton of excitement. Well, Chalk has kind of held Sam Houston State's the two seed, yeah. and, and they escaped a big hole that they dug against JMU <laughs> to make the, t the title game. Break this down for us. What are going to be some of the keys to the game on Sunday? Well, if you've watched Sam Houston as you have, Greg, unbelievably athletic. You know, at every position, the JMU game, I recall a, a running back getting free and a 300-pound defensive lineman ran him down from behind. I mean, that's how, as Sam Houston is, from top to bottom, just incredibly athletic at the FCS level. And, and they've gotten more physical up front. They used to have the reputation of being all offense, no defense. That certainly is not the case. They're one of the best teams in the nation at getting uh, two opponents in the backfield as far as tackles for loss are concerned. So SDSU, probably not quite as athletic, but a little bigger, a little more physical. Certainly something we've talked about a lot. You know, over the years, you got the Midwest style against the Southern style. So if SDSU can exert its authority on the offensive and defensive lines, the Jacks will certainly have an opportunity to go a long way. Uh, but if Sam Houston makes it more of an athletic game on the perimeter, not that the Jacks can't keep up, but it certainly puts them uh, in a little bit of a disadvantage. All right, it's going to be a great matchup. What what are the are, is testing still going on, and, and when does when do the Jack Roberts head down head to Texas to get ready for this one? The team will head down on Friday. Typically, they'd head down a few days earlier, more like a bowl game. But with the COVID nineteen, they're condensing everything down, and testing does still occur. And uh, one yeah. of the things that's changed is the amount of times you have to test. And if you're vaccinated now, you don't have to test anymore. Mm. So that has changed 
with NCAA protocols. So it does make life easier for some people, thankfully. But uh, but there will be a Saturday morning test for everybody uh, that's playing if they haven't been vaccinated. Uh, that plays on both sides. So we're not out of the gates yet. Neither are they. Hopefully nothing occurs, but you always have that in the back of your mind, of course. But, uh, but yeah, that will, uh, uh, both teams will head down on Friday. They'll have a chance to, to walk around the stadium on Saturday, get a practice in, and then Sunday it's go time. Oh, it's going to be great. Can't wait to watch that, Tyler. I'm happy for you and all your fan base that they're experiencing this. I know there's some Nebraska players on the roster, so we wish all of them good luck as well. And uh, I'll be tuned in. I'll be watching this one on Sunday. Have a great call. No, appreciate it, Greg. Take care. There he is, Tyler Merriam, the voice of the Jackrabbits. He'll be in Fresco, Texas, calling that matchup on Sunday. 2 o'clock, ABC has the television broadcast of that FCS title game between South Dakota State and Sam Houston State.